Hello and welcome to Beijing to Britain. This is the place where we talk all things UK China. I'm Sam Hogg, and I'm Stephen Lynch. Right, let's get into things. Okay, this week we've got the Munich Security Conference. We have got Chinese New Year consumption figures. We've got the Curry's takeover from JD.com. Where should we start? I think we should kick off with the David Cameron and Wang Yi meeting that took place, as you say, in the sort of bilateral sidelines of the Munich Security Conference this past weekend.、Um, you know, Steve, it's interesting. You made the point last week about how you thought that some people.、Uh, You were unkind to yourself, but included yourself in that. Had underestimated Cameron's potential as a as a foreign secretary and the reason for his return. I think the first thing that I saw was a, a, a sort of tweet thread over the weekend from Lord Ricketts, Peter Ricketts, who was the UK's first national security advisor. And one of the points that he made, which I thought you might find interesting, was that because Cameron has no constituency, he can, in theory, be out travelling seven days a week. He doesn't need to come back and talk about potholes and roads and you know. Why your grandma's cat won't come out from the tree and all that sort of stuff like that. He can be out and about in the world. So that was an interesting point, which brings us on to the Wang Yi meeting. If you go through the government readout, it's, it's quite fascinating what they what they say they discussed. So there's lots of stuff about trade.、Um, there's stuff about engagement. There, there was a long section at the end of the readout which touched on China should be exerting its influence on Iran to pressure the Houthis over their actions in the Red Sea. He also further stressed, this is David Cameron, the UK's position,、uh, and I would say frustration around China's role in the Ukraine-Russia conflict. Basically, they've been making the point consistently now for two years that by not acting, China is in effect allowing Russia to carry this war longer than it needs to be. And then the final section is a meaty section, and that basically was where the foreign secretary set out. All the major grievances that the government currently has with China on issues from Xinjiang, Hong Kong, parliamentarians being sanctioned by China—that's in its third year now, almost a third-year anniversary of that—and of course, Jimmy Lai in Hong Kong. So, a pretty hefty meeting and the first face-to-face from the pair of them since Cameron took office late last year. Yeah, and I think he was uh, quoted. Um, I want to return to the golden era days. Let's go <laughs> for a pint in the pub. Is that is that, that correct, is、Sam? absolutely? Did you get from the Daily Mail or was that the Telegraph?、Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was that was a direct <laughs> quote. Yeah, no, no. I think it, I, I honestly didn't think we'd be talking about the Foreign Secretary as much as we are on this podcast. It's been at just a different level to James Cleverly. But as you outlined, Lord Cameron is in a in a different space. But I also think Rishi Sunak is. Also, in a different space, he's allowing David Cameron to just be the prime minister in everything other than name on a global stage. He is all over the world, and again, you know, Munich Security Conference、uh, at the weekend, you know, and I think he has real gravitas when he is kind of speaking to these foreign leaders and these these, these foreign secretaries. So yeah, I, I think it's it's interesting, kind of the points that he's outlined. And as you as you mentioned in, in the readout, there's some real meaty、uh, conversations that took place there. And I think Wang Yi is a very experienced veteran diplomat. I hope it will be more than just lip service that conversation with David Cameron. I think it was quite an I think it was a very important meeting. He said that we're we're all willing in China to get this relationship back on track, which is which is means it's come off the tracks, which I think is quite interesting. But I think. You know、so、the anniversaries you mentioned—a two-year anniversary. It's the Russian-Ukrainian war anniversary coming up this weekend, and I think that's absolutely critical.、Um, I personally, because I was in China during the COVID lockdown, the COVID isolations, I really think China underestimated the global West's 
outrage and response to what Russia is still doing. A war on European soil. Is China sort of unwilling or not possible to talk Russia off this off this ledge? For many Europeans or global Western nations, the close relationship China has with Russia is just a massive problem. As Tobias Elwood lined, you know, for lots of people, there's sort of this linear pathway and behind Russia is China. And I think that's just a big concern. So, so look, I absolutely agree with your point about uh, Lord Cameron. And I think... He's a really good natural diplomat by, by the looks of it. Even today, he's in the Falklands where he, he cracked a joke about how he was pleased to see that their referendum uh, on British retaining the uh, the sort of sovereignty there went better than his one in the UK. And so he just has these things that come off the cuff in a way that the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak does not, does not have. And so much of foreign policy is actually about diplomacy and those sort of soft touches. Uh, to your point about the Western perception of where China sits in the Russia-Ukraine conflict. I absolutely agree with you that China completely misread, the Chinese government completely misread the public Western view over this conflict. Um, Obviously, that's not a shared view around the world, as we've seen from different African nations and and India and stuff like that. But that being said, if you're trying to, uh, you know, put the relationship back on the rails or whatever the terminology you mentioned there was, you need to acknowledge... Uh, that you made a mistake. And that's where I think the Chinese government critically undermines itself on on a very frequent um, rate, actually, is we often talk, and you know that I love to harp on about it, about the UK's lack of China capabilities. But I'm always surprised by how often the Chinese Communist Party and its officials and its diplomats completely misread the room in, in Western countries, despite we're told the whole time that, you know, they come over here, they're, they're educated in our universities, stuff like that. And, you know, oh, the ambassador or the former ambassador is very nice when you meet him one-on-one or very nice with a quiet word here. The the Chinese diktat often plays so poorly here. They are almost their own worst enemy when it comes to trying to convey their message and taking their message from, from here as well. They could absolutely do with a communications expert. Yeah, genuinely. I also wonder, as uh, Cameron's over in uh, the Falkland Islands, if Messi came up <laughs> as, a, as a conversation topic. Yeah. Leono Messi and his... Uh, Lack of game time in uh, Hong Kong. Exactly right. It's been all over Twitter for the last, it feels like it's been 45 years, but it must have been about two weeks tops, if that. Yeah, I wonder if that was a a readout issue. So Sam, in any industrial estate in the UK, you will find two shops. One is a Curry's and one is a PC World. Uh, But now it might be a JD store. JD.com is eyeing a bid potentially for, for Curry's PLC. Do you have any insight to this? Is it a national security risk? Are we going to have Chinese chips in our fridges, <laughs> in our fans? I think if this is a covert play to take hold of curries and start putting chips into the system, it's a very explicit one. I don't see it being like that at all. <laughs> but I have no doubt, Steve, that we'll read some commentary from one of the papers or potentially some MPs that says that could be the case. But on a more serious note, what, what appears to have happened here is that, as you say, massive e-commerce uh e-giant Chinese company JD.com has signaled an interest in buying curries the electronics gadget shop that you see as you said I it must be up there with Greg's as one of the most across the UK shops that you see in every single town especially in the sort of in England rather than Scotland but even the news alone that JD.com would potentially be buying it has seen curry share price go through the roof compared to where it was before in the last couple of days and the story was all over 
um, different reports here and different media, including some Telegraph coverage, which was bemoaning the fact that the the potential purchase heralds the end of British electronic retail kingdoms, and we're now going to have to sell out to the Chinese the whole time. The, the more interesting question, and this is a more technical one, is whether it will trigger any sort of government intervention. I cannot understand or see why it would. It doesn't fall, as far as I'm aware, within the National Security and Investment Act remit. I can't see Curry's, and I mean this with no criticism towards their team, being you know instrumental in our economic security. But interesting nonetheless, I, I guess we'll have to see how it develops because it's not confirmed yet. Sam, do you not think that raises a slightly bigger question in regards to sort of what is a national security threat? Mm. Often I'll speak to people and specifically from the business community and they say, look, we want to be compliant. We just want to know what the red lines mm. are. You know, what's the area of green? Is it just the green economy that we can engage with? Where where are the red lines and where are sort of the areas where it's OK to engage? Mm. And obviously the government say it's quite clear, but it, is it? Mm. Good question. I mean, so the... The red lines the government would point to would be anything they've signaled out in the National Security and Investment Act. I think there's 17 sensitive sectors, which goes from sort of AI through to undersea cables and stuff like that. And they would say, look, this is a this is a clear sort of red line for us here. That being said, that's out for consultation right now. And they've had feedback before. And the Business and Trade Committee sent in a piece last week saying you to update this stuff. So that's a sort of evolving thing as we as we're talking right now. But it gets to the heart of what the UK government is trying to work out right now, which is what every government has to go through, which is prosperity versus security. What can we afford to sell and encourage investment in? And what do we need to try and retain uh, as, as close to our security hearts, as it were? And to your point about the red lines as well, I was actually in Parliament earlier on today listening to a number of um, former business secretaries and sort of investment types give evidence to uh, the Business and Trade Committee. And one of the points that Lord Harrington, who's just done a massive report into investment in the UK, made was that businesses would love a good set of guidelines. They can deal with a bad set of guidelines, but what they cannot deal with is a changing set of guidelines. They cannot form strategy around that. So it's a really, it's an evolving question and one that unfortunately, Steve, will be underpinning almost everything we do for the next several years because if we've got Securonomics, coming down the line really fast as well. So we'll have to wait and see, basically. But it's a very fair point, and it's one that businesses raise consistently too. Steve, I have uh, some criticism to levy at you. Your incredibly unfair series of questions you put put to me last week on Chinese New Year have seen me ridiculed among my increasingly small group of friends. And they basically said that, how do you manage to get them all wrong? So if that was all projected data, is there anything that you've seen come sort of through the broadsheets or through your systems that imply it was a good or a bad Chinese New Year? So Sam Hogg, UK-China expert, gets every question wrong. Um, Sam, I've got one more question for you this week. In the period of Chinese New Year, the, the Lunar year, New Year, what was domestic tourism spending? In pounds, sorry, we'll do pounds. In pounds, well, that makes it much easier. I think it was 18 billion pounds. You're not even close. You're not even close. It's a, it's a, it's around 65 to 75 billion <laughs> pounds sterling. So this is just a demonstration of just how big the tourist sector, how big travel is during Chinese New Year. Mm. There's been a lot of analysts sort of saying, yeah, this is good, but it's not good enough. You know, is consumer confidence really returning? You know, overseas trips were still down. 
but what it basically demonstrates is the numbers are sort of now equal to the, the spending pre-COVID. Mm. So it's kind of that classic cautious optimism when it comes to the economy, a little bit of wait and see, but you know maybe it's these green shoots of consumer confidence returning. But um, yeah, it's just phenomenal when you start to break down the numbers, largest human migration you know, on the planet and just look how much it means to global and the national uh, you know, economy. Fascinating. Mm. Uh, but that's it. No more quizzes. No more questions for you, Sam. So you've got away <laughs> scot-free. No, you haven't. You've got away with another question wrong. <laughs> well, actually, that serves as a very useful segue because one of the things, one of the things we're doing in today's episode is speaking to a group called the Oxford China Policy Laboratory. And that you might recognize that name if you are a close Beijing to Britain reader. We submitted evidence with them to Parliament's Foreign Affairs Committee last year on the issue of basically trying to create China capability in the system, getting more people speaking Mandarin, getting more Chinese culture stuff learned, how do we reform Whitehall, yada, yada, yada. I'll include it in a link to this so you can have a little read. But we're speaking to uh, Scott Singer and Kayla Blomquist from OCPL. They're going to be speaking to us about how they take complex academic insights and ideas and put them into a format, succinct format, for policymakers. Scott and Kayla, thank you for joining us. I think it would be best, first of all, you could introduce yourselves and then say a bit about what OCPL does. My name is Kayla Bloomquist. I am co-founder and co-director, along with Scott, of the Oxford China Policy Lab. I am also pursuing my... DPhil at the Oxford Internet Institute on AI governance, US-China relations, um, and how all of that's going to go. And before coming to Oxford, I was with the US State Department in Beijing and Guangzhou for several years. My name is Scott Singer. I am also a co-founder and director of the Oxford China Policy Lab. I'm currently in the final year of my PhD at the University of Oxford in International Relations. My own research looks at how uh, publics are actually thinking about security issues um, related to the technology sector in the U.S.-China relationship. I spend a lot of my time here teaching and working with young people and thinking about ways, along with Kayla, about how to bridge the gap between academics, graduate students, and the policy world. How do you guys describe what you do to policy folk or diplomats that you're engaging with and students on the other side too? In terms of actually executing this mission, there's sort of three key things that we do. The first is ourselves producing and working with other people on creating accessible but very rigorous research that speaks to important questions on the U.S.-China relationship, especially in the tech sector, oftentimes involving um, critical third countries, so the U.K. Um, my background is very much focused on uh, Taiwan and cross-rate issues, so I work a lot on those types of things. Um, the second thing that we try to do is to amplify existing research. Um, we currently have a fellows program, and the goal there is to not try to you know, tell these fellows what to think or who they should be, um, but to take these excellent ideas and to ride them with a platform and connect them to different outlets and policymakers. And the last thing that we do is we teach. And so really equipping these super talented students who have purely academic backgrounds in many cases and telling them how we can actually bridge this divide successfully. Could I just press you a little bit on that? So I think one of the biggest challenges, certainly working with government, is that they operate in silos, that we think they're talking to each other, but quite often they're not. And especially when we're looking at foreign policy, because, of course, the focus is domestic policy. So how on earth do you actually put that, that academic research into practical solutions that they can utilise in their daily jobs? 
I think it's very much tied to understanding incentives into skill building. So if we think about the incentives that policymakers have, their job is to prescribe and to actually do make some change in the world. That is their job, and their action their job is to take an action or to not take an action. Whereas it's the job of a you know for most social scientists you know who are most relevant in our space, their job is to explain something that's happened in the past. It's to analyze. And there may be policy implications for what they're doing, but very rarely do they actually prescribe what a policymaker should be doing. A big issue that we see among academics is that because they're used to speaking, for example, to different academic literatures or to speaking in very technical terms with each other, is that their research is oftentimes very inaccessible to people who are in the policy world. And so understanding how a policymaker thinks and what a policymaker can actually do in pitching themselves and shaping their policy recommendations in a way that actually makes sense to the policymaker is sort of the key, I think, to actually bridging the divide. As you say, they're quite complex, challenging issues, but it seems policymakers, or maybe I'm generalizing as politicians, just seem to be dealing in snapshots at the moment, sort of sound bites. Again, it kind of maybe comes back down to that practical. How, how on earth do you get that sort of complex issues to someone who doesn't have a lot of time, doesn't have a lot of depth on, on the understanding, trying to get across these complex challenges so they can sort of really get it and make better informed decisions? Yeah, especially on the politician side and the issue with kind of governed by soundbite is so present. And I think this will always be an uphill battle. Um, so this will be an ongoing effort and in OCPL, we've looked at different formats and ways of presenting information to policymakers and uh, politicians as well. And sometimes that can look like, okay, you have a very long, sometimes 100-page report that someone has spent many years of their life building the expertise to write um, and how they have a lot to say on it. But how can you, once you're familiar with that and have thought through all of these points within it, how can you boil that down to a one-page summary or even three bullet points? That in itself is a huge skill, uh, which we are ourselves trying to consistently get better at and teach uh, those that are in the fellowship and beyond. Uh, but that is such a difficult skill, really, especially knowing when it's the right time to place that information and how to frame it. I find it interesting in terms of the academic pipeline. One of the things that I observed firsthand when I was working for an MP was what I horribly named the academic radicalization pipeline, which was when, as you say, we would have someone who spent 10, 15, 20 years of their life becoming a specialist on an issue. They would send in a report or send in a piece they'd written, well, often, often a report, 30, 40 pages. No one's reading that, unfortunately, in, in politics, as for the reasons you guys have outlined, that, that the resource that people have the least is time. And they would send it in and then they would say, it's so frustrating that politicians don't engage with my expertise. I'm not going to engage with them going forward. And for me, it's an ongoing area where politics is particularly weak. And I think tied into that is you discuss this idea about experimenting with formats to engage. I wonder if, do you think the the diplomatic telegram, the dip tell uh, route is a, is a useful way, is a way that politicians could respond to? Or have you found in terms of your experimentation, the perfect level right now? Is it the sort of dip tells? Is it a timely briefing? Or is it actually face-to-face if you can have an event in that sense? There's this old saying, you know, you can never understand someone's perspective until you walk in someone else's shoes. 
as an academic, we're constantly walking in each other's shoes and we're doing the academic thing in the academic language. And we really, if you stay in these academic ivory towers, you really have no idea how policymakers are actually thinking. I think actually having empathy to the policymaker who's going to make a really difficult decision with very limited information in a very short amount of time, then the question becomes, once I accept their incentive structure and their constraints, how can I deliver the best possible you know, output for what this person might possibly need? And so you asked earlier about, well, what is the you know, the best output, you know, should I talk to this person? Should I write a one pager for this person? Well, it depends entirely based on what you're trying to get across. You know, if you're trying to talk to an individual person about something that is really going to be important for a decision that they have to make, then having a one-on-one conversation could be quite meaningful. But if you are trying to, for example, enter into a bureaucracy of some sort, into some legislative process, then writing a really effective memo that could, that could travel quite well from policymaker to policymaker could be a more effective solution. And so understanding where exactly you fall in the technical depths of these policy processes will actually provide, I think, the key answer to where you would fall in terms of what your output actually is. What right now, what spaces in the UK-China bilateral do you feel could do with some more proper academic rigor in, in the proper sense of the word? This definitely is not uh, an area that is lacking attention, but there's just so much to it. There's so much that is unknown. There is just a ton of noise around AI, given the buzzword that it is. And so I think it's really important to return to and make sure that we are grounding this in very thorough research and expertise um, and doing our very best to create that as there are very rapid developments, both within foreign policy spaces and within the development of the technology itself. Uh, so I think we just need to make sure we're investing a lot, not just in in developing um, domestic governance uh, that is effective in terms of regulations of AI, but also trying to really understand what China's calculus is in a thorough way so that we're not over underestimating dangerously what their approach will be. If I could just ask one final question, I guess that's around capabilities um, and capacity building, which I think is absolutely critical. If you could just have one big hope moving forward, what would it be around this, around building capabilities? Personally, one of my big hopes would be for the UK government and other governments as well to invest a lot in allowing the development of experts within the civil service or other areas of government over time. These are going to be portfolios that you cannot just put someone in a position for three months to two years and expect them to know the ins and outs and then move them to a a different policy area, as happens so much, both in foreign and civil services. Um, So I would really encourage taking an approach to those areas of creating specializations and experts within within government careers uh, rather than continuing a heavy emphasis on quick rotations. Yeah, I think I would like to see the UK take a proactive approach in determining where it can be an active leader and facilitator in addressing some of these key questions in China and technology, and then really encouraging and building up specialized expertise for people who can build these challenges. I think one of the greatest assets the UK has is universities and its talent um, within academic spaces. And so you have people who frankly could scale up to see what in Chinese if they had the resources and could probably also do a PhD in electrical engineering if they so wanted. 
But the issue is really around resources. And so I think thinking strategically around, well, what type of experts do we need who could solve really challenging and pressing problems? And then what resources could we put in place to get them there would be a potentially really impactful way that the UK could scale up its capabilities and also provide a model for other countries to follow. The UK has a ton of soft power um, and people look to what the UK does as, as sort of a model that it potentially could be followed under certain, under certain circumstances. And so I think that if the UK can figure out how to lead in capabilities um, in these super challenging technical areas where there is already artificial intelligence expertise and there are all these people thinking about those difficult questions, that it would be really exciting to see the UK lead there. Yeah, it is. And it like it really is never the issue of, okay, people in these positions aren't smart enough. That's definitely not it. It's how how do we manage our talent? How do we manage our time in each of these positions? Um, that gets a bit lost sometimes in the shuffle. Okay, so Steve, I, I thought that was quite a complex issue. You know, how do you boil stuff down into a digestible format without it becoming sort of redundant and oversimplified? I guess actually it's a territory that you're quite familiar with because when you were back on in your British Chamber days, you had to take that report and give it to policymakers and try and get across the main points. What, what sort of lessons would you impart in that experience, do you reckon, and based on what you've heard just then as well? There's just such a challenge of communicating policy or communicating policy recommendations and i don't think there's a silver bullet maybe add more pictures into a document yeah. um you know captain you know. but on a on a serious note you know the the granularity gives you the credibility but no one's going to read the granularity mm. um especially the people who don't have the time and they're the people you want to read it so the truth is and like any academic will tell you um, you know, your executive summary needs to be on point and your key messaging needs to jump off the page mm. if that's the way that you're communicating it. But I think it does speak to a, a wider challenge around how you really communicate very complex issues into a decision. Mm. Um, and, and that's always going to be a challenge, especially when policymakers and government are sort of operating in silos. Uh, we need to sort of get them away from that in regards to joint up thinking hopefully that leads to better decisions but it's 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 a challenge and as i say there's no one solution fits all but more public discourse more public debate more engagement when it comes to policy and willing engagement when it comes to policy is critical what's your thoughts i would take mine even a step further and a bit more abstract and say that trying to get someone's attention for half an hour now regardless of what rank they are or what age they are is actually quite difficult and as you say, like there is a, a, a stage you get to where you actually can't simplify something down into a 30 second clip. It has to be, I mean, that the nature of what we do with this podcast, for example, is to speak about issues at length for a bit, to try and add that color and the, the com complexity to it that it needs to have. And I do wonder whether human beings' brains are being slightly molded by social media to the point now where it's harder to communicate proper factual policy rather than them lean towards things that look good or sound good or could be clipped well and stuff like that it's it's a as you, as i'm saying to you you can tell this is a theory that i haven't soundproofed entirely or, or checked for holes but that's my gut right now and my gut tells me that actually the incentive structures that exist around politicians through no fault of their own necessarily make it as hard as ever basically to try and get across key policy recommendations to them yeah the key is to cut through the noise yeah and I suppose with that, Sam, maybe we've been rambling on. <laughs> People have only got a half an hour attention span. Yeah. 
That brings us to the end of the podcast. Brilliant. On that note, I will speak to you next week. The great news is that next week you'll be speaking to two Sams. Uh, there'll be Sam, me, obviously, and Sam Goodman from the China Strategic Risks Institute. So that should be fantastic. Mm-hmm.